0: And on this week that we celebrate the birth of our nation, it is really important to remember what our founding fathers remembered and declared on July the 4th, 1776, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights, which among these are these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, our founders knew that our rights, not just as Americans, but as humans, comes from above. The freedom that we have comes from God. But why take a day, I think, to honor our veterans? Because the reality is it's the soldier, not the preacher, that guarantees our freedom of religion. It's the soldier, not the news journalist, that guarantees our freedom of press. You see, our founding fathers knew that those freedoms come from God, but it's been on the blood of thousands and thousands of Americans that have secured those freedoms well over 200 years later. It was in the 1820s, a man came from France by the name of Alex de Tocqueville. He was a French philosopher and a political, uh, maybe we would call him today maybe a political activist or he studied political science. And he'd come to the Americas to find out what the secret was to this new nation's greatness, what was called then the great experiment Because no nation had ever been founded like this one, with the same type of government and self-rule as this one. And he came to America's, and after going back to France, he published what is today a very famous volume entitled Democracy in America. Now, if you decide to read it, just understand what you're getting into. It's about that thick, literally. Democracy in America by Alex de Tocqueville. My son actually read the entire book. He said, Dad, did you read this book, Democracy in America? I said, no, son, I read the bullet points. (laughs) But one of those bullet points was a very interesting quote, an observation he made. And that's what this book was, as eyewitness account, personal observations of what made this nation great in the early years of our nation's birth. He said, I went through the halls of Congress and I studied this nation's governing system but did not find the secret to what made that nation great. He said, I went to the harbors of America, and I looked at the vast natural resources, the fertile soil, and the timber, and the forests that go on and on for miles, but I did not find the secret to what made America great. He said, I went to the educational institutions, and I went to the higher education, and the seminaries, and colleges, He said, I went to the schoolrooms of America, but I still did not find what made that nation great. He said, it was not until I went to the churches of that nation, and I saw the pulpits aflame with righteousness, and I saw Americans on their faces before God, praying before the God of heaven. He said, that is when I discovered the secret to America's greatness. He said, America is great because America is good. And in essence, what he was saying is that America is great because America is godly. Now, he also chronicled some things that were not godly about our nation's beginnings. He chronicled the fact that our nation indeed was a nation of slavery. And he pointed out some of the racism that was alive at that time. And the reality is we are still living today as a nation with some of the sins of our fathers. But the reality of what he was saying was simply this. Generally speaking, the average American is a God-fearing human being. And the average American recognizes that God is sovereign over their life. And consequently, America is great because America is godly. But most of us would agree, when you look at the condition of our nation today, and the social problems we face today, It could be argued that America is no longer godly. We have drifted from that foundation from which America began. When you look at all the social issues and you see all the things happening in Washington, D.C., and we wonder where the leaders are and what they're going to do, the reality is I'm convinced part of the problem is we are looking for political solutions to spiritual issues. And there are no political answers to the spiritual issues that we face as a nation. We live in a time of moral anarchy where every man does what is right in his own eyes because there is no biblical authority. You see, the God of heaven is no longer the one we see as being sovereign over our lives. In the days of Solomon, as he built the temple in Jerusalem and they consecrated that temple, God knew the day would come that this people who were once godly would fall into idolatry and depravity and eventually then captivity, and he made a promise to them that I'm convinced as a promised now to you and I, a nation that was indeed once godly, but has increasingly fallen into idolatry and ultimate moral depravity. And I want you to see ultimately, it always leads historically into captivity. And here's what God said to that people that I'm convinced is true today. It's found in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from from heaven I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land now this is what I'm asking you to do I want you to begin praying with me for revival in our nation and this passage of scripture this promise is something you can begin praying daily and I'm praying this daily God that you'd bring revival to our nation beginning with me personally revival with my family revival with my church you see revival doesn't begin out there it always begins in here And for all the attention we give to the White House, listen carefully, the White House is simply a reflection of the church house. You see, it's not politics that shape the moral climate of a nation, it is the pulpits that shape a moral climate of the nation, and eventually politics simply reflect the nation's pulpits. We need revival in here before it comes out there. You can download this app, as I've done. It's If714. You can go to the App Store, and what this thing is is a prayer prompter at exactly 714 a.m. and 714 p.m. It's just a prompt to remind you to pray for revival, and that's what I'm doing. I'm praying almost without ceasing, God, that there'd be another great awakening. You see, Alex de Tocqueville toured this nation during what historians call the second great awakening. There was a move of God that was undeniable, that was indescribable, that was truly supernatural and he happened to be here in the 1820s when this move of God was sweeping over our nation and thousands and thousands and thousands of Americans were having their lives changed by God and tens of thousands were coming to Christ all up and down the eastern seaboard and it spread like fire through dry timber clear into the western frontier you see that's what he witnessed when he was here and we need another great awakening I'm talking about a move of God again in our land. And what this app does simply remind you twice a day, God, would you bring revival to our nation? Would you bring revival to my church? Would you bring revival to me? And this passage right here in Second Chronicles 7, 14 is what it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Revival always begins with humility. Humility before God. If you want God to begin to move in your life in an indescribable, undeniable, supernatural way, it all begins with a heart that is postured before God in submission, a heart of humility. You see, humility is what tells him that we are in a place of dependency, And this is what God says over and over again in Scripture through the Apostle Peter. He said, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You see, this is the opposite of this selfie society, a society full of self-idolatry where everything is about me. And what humility says to God is, God, it is not about me, it is all about you. It's all for your glory. In the face of this selfish society, I denounce the right over my life and I give all rights to you. And here's the reality. Self-exaltation eventually separates us from God. God resists the proud. In other words, he stiff-arms the proud. Proud, proud people say, I don't need God. Proud people say, I can do it apart from God. Proud people wanna come to God on their terms instead of God's, but humility says, God, I've gotta have you. Now listen, today is not gonna be as much about preaching as it is about prayer. A lot of people talk about revival, but revival doesn't come because we talk about it or teach about it or preach about it. Revival comes as we begin to pray and petition God for revival. Some of us here today need revival in our marriages. We need revival in our homes. We need revival in our families. We need revival in our hearts. You see, revival is about what God begins doing in me personally. And so today, I want to invite you To this altar, I want you to have the complete liberty to go where you wanna go, do what you wanna do. You can stay right in your seat, but we're gonna be in petitioning God right now with hearts of humility. God, would you come and meet with me personally? God in heaven, you said if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And Lord we live in a proud place full of proud people. You've said you resist the proud but give grace to the humble. And we confess today our desperate dependency on the God of heaven. Lord, the problems we face as a nation. Lord, there is no political solutions, no legislation that can get to the heart of the problem. The problem, dear God, is our hearts. Would you humble us today Help us to walk in humility before you, confessing that you're God and we're not.
1: Come, let the people sing The glory of your name Let revival come Let the people sing The glory of your name Let revival
0: of my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and then look what it says pray you see when you begin walking in humility before God it drives you to dependency in God and when you're dependent on God you naturally begin to pray to God and for the believer listen dependency is not weakness, dependency equals power. All of a sudden, you begin to live in the power of God because you've given up on the power of self. And so when you begin to have a heart of humility, you naturally begin to pray before the God of heaven. It drives you to prayer. And here's the reality. There's a lot of people that would love to see revival come to our land, but you don't get a million-dollar request on $5 prayers. You know, when you go to Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah was burdened for the condition of his nation. He'd heard the walls of Jerusalem had fallen. The foundation was in erosion. He was burdened for a place he'd never been, to a land he'd never seen. He'd lived all of his life in Babylon. Babylon. But he'd heard the condition of Judah, and he began to be burdened for what was going on in his nation. Indeed, we live at a time where it's impossible to deny it. Our nation is in some way in erosion. The foundation and the walls have fallen. We're not what we once were. Because we have drifted and turned on our back on the God who made us. And you can see this, the rise and falls of nations. You can see this in the rise and fall of a people. It goes from apathy, meaning we just don't care about God. And eventually it's apostasy, which says there is no God. And then you're in a state of anarchy, which says we're all God. And that is now where we live as a land. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, moral anarchy, spiritual anarchy. And it eventually leads to captivity. You can see this historically But Nehemiah was burdened, he began to pray. In fact, what it says is he prayed in Nehemiah chapter one for four months, day and night. He petitioned God for four months, day and night. He had more than just a temporary emotion. He had a true burden for his nation and he began to pray for four months, day and night and we know historically he would indeed lead a band of Jews back into Jerusalem and they would rebuild the walls of that city and rebuild the walls of that nation and they would repair that foundation And you know what? When you get to about Nehemiah chapter 8, revival broke out once again in that holy city. They said they began to read the word of God again and publicly proclaim the word of God again. And thousands were in the streets of that city. Imagine standing there for hour after hour after hour. Revival and awakening had swept through the ancient Hebrews. They were coming back to the God of heaven in such a way that it says in Nehemiah chapter 8, they stood there for hours. Hours, they just wouldn't go away. Imagine, here, listen carefully. Revival happens, and you guys just won't leave church. It's like we got a third service coming in behind, but nobody will leave. That's what happens when the presence of God shows up. It all began when one man began to pray and petition God. In Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, "Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And so we're gonna do that right now. I told you, it's gonna be more prayer than preaching. And honestly, you can do whatever you wanna do. You can sit there honestly and do nothing. You can just punch the time clock and check church off your list of things to do, or you can genuinely engage the God of heaven. But together, let's begin to call on his name. And Lord, as Nehemiah petitioned you and interceded for his nation, now we do. Lord, you made a promise in the days of Ezekiel. Chapter 22 and verse 30. You said, I sought for a man or a woman among them that would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land. But in those days, you said you found no one And Lord, I know that when you look at this church and all over this land, Lord, you see thousands and thousands and thousands of those that name your name standing in the gap, interceding for our generation. Lord, together we make up a wall as the body of Christ. And we confess how desperate we are for you, Lord, for another great awakening, a revival, an unprecedented move of God. But Lord, we confess it doesn't begin out there. It begins, God, right here. It begins with us personally, individually. We promise to begin praying daily, confessing in humility our desperate need for you personally. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. What does that mean to seek the face of God? Well, this word face is often translated as presence. It's about seeking the presence of God. Do you want the presence of God in your life? You can have the presence of God. You can have the power of God. But you know what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? No flesh can glory in his presence. See, God's not going to share space with any of us And as long as you're just trying to maybe share the throne of your life with God or maybe just sit on a little corner of that throne in your life with God, you'll never know the real manifest presence of God. See, God alone gets to sit on that throne. And as you begin to seek his face, What happens is self begins to go away. If you want the presence of God, self has to be shattered. Self has to be crucified in this selfie society full of self-idolatry. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. You see, it's the crucified life that no flesh can glory in his presence. And this isn't a one-time thing you do. It means you continue to pursue the presence of God in your life. Every single day, when you get out of bed, you begin to pray, God, I need your presence in my life. God, I've got to have you in my life. It was almost 20 years ago today. I'd been pursuing God and seeking God's face and seeking God's presence, I don't know, for weeks, maybe even months. And God was dealing with me personally about ministry. And most of you know I was a police officer. I wasn't sure if he's calling me into ministry. And I began to seek God's face. And almost 20 years ago to this day is when something happened and something changed. I was on a mission trip to Mexico. I met an old missionary by the name of Carlos Demarest. I'm standing there talking to him, my pastor was there, they were kind of talking and all of a sudden I began to weep and I began to sob because I felt the presence of God as I never had before. A few months later, it was at a missions conference in this little brick building where we started that's no longer there, missionary preached. I remember going to the altar, honestly, just sobbing uncontrollably. I couldn't stop myself. You know why? Because when you get in the presence of God, you have an Isaiah 6 moment. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm undone for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts and all of a sudden it's more than just an emotional experience you have that doesn't last till Monday. Being in the presence of God will radically change your life. I mean the rest of your life. And God makes a promise for those that will seek his face. He says these words in Psalm 69, verse 32. The humble shall see this, the presence of God, revival in your life. He'll bring revival to your home, that marriage that's almost died. He'll breathe new life on that marriage, new love, new hope, that family that seems to be broken. He has the power to put the broken pieces back together again. Look at what he says. You shall see this revival and be glad. And you who seek God, your heart shall live. Jesus is the bread of life, but we come to church and are satisfied with just a crumb of God's presence. And I'm no longer satisfied. I want to see God. And I encourage you right now to get on your knees with me. And together, let's seek his face. begin to petition him in your own words say God I need you Lord I need your presence in my life I want to know more of you and I want you to have more of me God, individually, I pray that we begin to seek your face. As families, I pray that we begin to seek your face, your presence. And corporately, I pray, God, that we would seek your face, that we, Lord, would not be satisfied any longer with what is. We need a move of God, a move of the Holy Spirit. We pray for your manifest presence upon our life. Lord, you've said that no flesh can glory in your presence. God, I pray that you would crucify our flesh. That we would get out of the way every day and seek your face that the presence of God would go with us when we leave this place what we need, a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. Breathe upon us the breath of life, oh God. And that's what God does. He's a God of the resurrection. He resurrects that which is dead. That's what revival is. When your heart has grown cold, when your heart has wandered away, when it seems there's no hope, that everything's too broken. He resurrects things that have died. He rebuilds what is broken. He restores what is lost. That's what we mean when we say revival. And it's all right here. When we humble ourselves, pray, seek, and turn. Humble, pray, seek, and turn. This isn't a one-time thing. Every single day, humble, pray, seek, and turn. You see, there's one more thing. Here's what happens. When you humble yourself before God, you begin to spend time in prayer before God. Naturally, you're seeking now the presence of God. It'll always turn to this last thing. He says, turn from your wicked ways. and it's really easy to talk about all the wickedness out there and all the sin, oh no. But it's right here, it's right here. It's not out there, it's in here. I'm getting ready to preach for the book of James verse by verse starting next week as I'm studying for James. I stopped right here in James chapter one. I just meditated on this. I've been meditating on this for months. Look at what it says in James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You know what God is saying? Look, if you're really a Christian, I mean, I've done all the work for you, but if you really wanna do something for me, here's what he's saying. Have compassion, live with consecration. Now here's what's amazing. I'm convinced the church today, the church, not just our church, but the church, we do this better than ever. Compassion ministry. We sent 1,100 people a few months ago into our city to serve our city. We've sacrificed greatly to have a food pantry. That's just a little bit of what we do. Compassion is what we're really good at. But can I tell you what we're not good at? Consecration. What is consecration? It's a word that means separation. We're called to live separated from the world. Second Corinthians six seventeen: come out from among them, the world, and be you separate, touch not the unclean thing. James four and verse four, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. You see, we as Christians are meant to be in the world, to change the world, but too much of the time, the world has gotten into us and has changed us. Romans 12 and verse two, be not conformed to the world. The world is constantly putting pressure on us to conform us and mold us. God says, don't do it. Lest God forsake us. And I would suggest the problem in our nation is a problem in the church the nation is where the nation is because the church is where the church is we're full of compassion but we lack a consecration god says be you holy for i am holy what he's saying is it's not enough to go serve and love your neighbor if you're harboring sin in your heart it's not enough to have great compassion if you lack consecration like go serve in a soup kitchen all day Saturday and then go home and sleep with your girlfriend even though you're not married. It's not sufficient if we really love God and we're really seeking the presence of God. This is the cost. And it's it's time to stop coming to church honestly and just getting our little Jesus fix for the week. Just enough of Jesus To make me feel good about myself like God's not ticked at me now because I came to church. Going back to the same place with the same people getting drunk on a Saturday night coming to church on Sunday morning. tell you what I just I wish I could do sometimes honestly I just wish I get Christians to get along just love each other you cannot imagine the enormous amounts of energy in pastoral leadership frankly just helping foster relationships in the body of Christ Like we have these acceptable sins as Christians, gossip, backbiting, backstabbing. You know what the Apostle Paul said? He desires that he would present the church as a chaste, virgin bride, but we've lost our chastity. Jesus desires a holy bride. And it's time for us to turn and turn every day, turn from our wicked ways. Listen, wickedness, evil dwells inside of me. It's not you, it's me, I'm telling you. Apart from Jesus, my heart is on one of, it's depravity, it's depraved, it's lustful. It hates what is good, it loves what is evil. All of our hearts, apart from God, is true of us all. to learn your desperate need for God. Jesus, I need you. I can't do this apart from you. Be you holy for I am holy. God is holy. When you get in his presence, you know it's like I'm undone because you see God for who he is and then you see yourself for who you are. You know you're in desperate need of redemption. So would you bow with me right now? Let's come before the living God just begin to confess your sin. You know what your sin is. Just you and him. Lord, I confess the sin that dwells inside of me, the arrogance, the pride, selfish ambition. Oh God, forgive me. Lord, we desire to be a pure spotless bride, at abundant life, a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle, You're coming one day soon for a a glorious, spotless bride. Lord, I pray the bride would make herself ready. And we confess that too much of the time, the world has gotten into us and changed us instead of us getting into the world to change the world. But Lord, we thank you that we have a God who is holy, but a God that's also full of mercy quick to forgive and we claim that promise of 1st John 1 and verse 9 that if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness Jesus we thank you that you bore our sin our shame you took our blame and three days later you rose again so that we could be called sons of the most high daughters of the most high born again blood-bought purchased pardoned redeemed of God Let's worship Him.
1: Revival come let the priest
0: God be the glory, yes. He's worthy, he's worthy of our love, he's worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our loyalty. Hey, whatever God has begun in your heart today, would you let God keep doing that when you leave? I mean, all week long, remember humble, pray, seek, turn. God's gonna show up in your life as never before, I promise you. Have a really blessed fourth, love y'all very, very much. God bless you, God go with you.